Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So we are in the second week and consequently the second chapter of Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. Sorry, I've got something. But a year ago in this adult Sunday school class, we had a series taught by Caleb Patton on the gospel. He did a, an excellent job leading us in this important topic of gospel. We are believers because we heard and we responded to that gospel. It's the good news that we must have. Caleb walked us through a definition um, <clears throat> and a foundation for what uh, detail, so he talked us through a definition and the uh, foundation in detail of what the gospel is. It's more than just the trite, it's good news, even though it is the good news, but, but what it is and how it works. He showed us why it's important to share this good news as much as we can, taking advantage of every opportunity. Um, one of the things that we discussed were barriers to sharing. Um, I appreciated that there are passive ways to share it, like passing out tracts and things like that. But, but really the best and really about the only way to have someone talk to others is about the good news. But the be best way to do that is to actually have that conversation with someone. We see that in Romans 10, 13 through 15. If I could get my laptop to work, you'd see it behind me. But what it says is, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That good news, it's the gospel. We know that, right? It's so important for us to interact with other people to build relationships so that we can share the gospel with them. Caleb did a, did a great job showing us a few methods on how to share the gospel. There isn't just one way to tell the good news, but God has been gracious um, in that he has uh, gifted certain people, many people, in um, being able to communicate and to share. Uh, he has equipped them to speak and, and we can learn from their example. You know, using our own testimony is a, is a good way to, to share the gospel. How, is, how has the gospel affected your life and changed you? And sharing that with somebody else. Um, he talked about the bridge diagram or the law diagram or the lordship diagram. Those were some examples that he shared with us on how we can use that to share with others. If you're looking for a reminder of that or a refresher, we have all of that on our website. Um, if you go under resources, adult Christian education, and then the series uh, for that was titled Beautiful Feet, obviously taken from that Romans 10 passage. So if you want to see that, those types of, uh, be reminded of that or, or rem get caught back up on that, that you can find that on our website. But that um, is not the goal for this semester. We're going in, in a bit of a different direction in this class. I kind of think of that class and this class as, as working together. 
Um, we, are gonna, we are talking about the gospel, but it's not, um, not the, uh, how to, what it is and how to share it. That's not the uh, goal here. Last week, we started this conversation on how we, re- how we believers will replace the gospel and ultimately God with idols in our life, worshiping something other than God. We don't see this idol worship the same way that we see totem poles or uh, golden calves or temples to some kind of random deity. Though our, our worship looks different than that of other religions, we do at times worship something other than God. We replace our adoration or devotion of God and place it on things or people we've consent, convinced ourselves will satisfy or will give us something that we think we need. We have to have a right understanding of where these idols are. How do the idols in my life and your life get there? Why we worship the created instead of the creator? And then once we know that, then we have to refocus and get back on track when we've replaced right worship of God with wrong worship of something else. And that's the goal of this class. These first few classes are going to be a little bit difficult, right? We're going to talk about the problem. These classes aren't necessarily, or these first chapters in the book aren't necessarily soft and warm and cuddly when we're talking about how we lose our love for God and put things on the throne of our heart. That can be hurtful. But we have to understand the hard things before we can fix them. We got to understand what the problem is before we get to the solution. Just like we need to understand sin and separation from a perfect and holy God to fully understand why we even need a gospel, this class talks about the ugly before we discuss the solutions. Brad Bigney titled his book, Gospel Treason. I was thinking about what exactly is treason? It's a word we use and I I think like, oh, treason. I kind of have this idea of... um, like something in old days, like you see the old, um, messed, um, like faded newspaper, it's yellowed, and it says like treason in big letters, and like this, uh, like accusation of somebody that's commuting, uh, committed treason. And so, how do we know exactly what treason is? So, I went to dictionary.com, like, what is a definition, right? So, dictionary.com, the ultimate authority on, on all things words, right? It says, it defines treason as this the offense of acting to overthrow one's government or to harm or kill its sovereign. Uh, another thing is a violation of allegiance to one's sovereign or to one's state. And and another way it says is the betrayal of a trust or confidence, a breach of faith, treachery. I think that's an apt representation of us when we're dealing with our heart idols, trying to overthrow the sovereignty of something else. Now, I'm not a a history buff, much to the uh, chagrin of Andrew Walden. Uh, My knowledge of historical things is is lackluster at best. I really want to be a history buff. I really want to know history. Um, I want to know the things from the past. I I have a bank of things uh, that I can pull out of my mind, but the extent of those things, um, it it just kind of pales in what what I should know about history, especially to those who study it, know it, like Andrew and others. I mean, I know about the Battle of Monmouth from the musical uh, uh, Hamilton. Uh, that's, that's how I know about that. So, 
But uh, this past weekend, I was pretty proud of my son um, that they knew history better than I did, or at least that they, uh, they had this understanding of history I was really thankful for. Uh, for Independence Day, I wore this shirt, and on the front, it had 1776, and under it, it said, We the People. And uh, Eli, my 11-year-old son, told me that my shirt had a mistake on it. I was like, oh no. So I just got this shirt. I'm like looking at it upside down trying to see like something. It's like letters coming off or is it, you know, misprinted or something like that. I really liked the design. I was, I was proud of it. So I was like, I wanted to show my, my patriotism, patriotism and love of this wonderful country, so I'm trying to figure this out. And he goes, well, it says 1776, and we the people, but it shouldn't say that because the Constitution wasn't ratified in 1776. I was like, how do you know what ratified means? <laughs> like, and then I was like, it wasn't ratified in 1776? Like, oh. I, I knew that. But I was like, I'm trying to explain to him like, th th the idea of the shirt, right? Like, so here we are. This is, we have our freedoms. We live in this democratic republic that's by the people, for the people. Like, it's, I'm like trying to, come on. He's like, yeah, well, it shouldn't have said that because the Constitution wasn't in 1776. And thank you. Well, you win some, you lose some. You know, like he, he knew it and I was proud of that, and I still wore the shirt. So, But if we look back at history, and we look back at examples of treason from history, there are people who have been accused of or tried for treason that have had a big impact on our country and on others. If I asked you some examples of traitors, who would you say? Who can you name that committed treason? Benedict Arnold. Yeah, that, and who did you say? Benedict. Benedict Arnold, right? Yeah, that's the first one that came to my mind. Um, you know, he, he switched from the British side, uh, or excuse me, switched to the British side and even fought against men that he had led as an American. We even use his name as a synonym for a traitor, right? We'll call, if someone's acting like a traitor or, you know, we're like, oh, you Benedict Arnold, you know, we'll, we'll use that uh, as, a, as a synonym. Of course, there's Judas as well, right? If we're going to be church, right? We should be biblical, right? You know, it's, he did the same thing. Um, and we'll also use his name synonymous with a traitor, like, oh, you Judas, right? Yeah, they, they swore allegiance to a sovereign, but then switched that allegiance, and it had dire consequences for the rest of, his, on, for the rest of history. Bigney's promise or excuse me, that the, the premise of his book here is that when we choose idols to worship, we're committing treason, right? This is, in other words, it's, it's idolatry. Since Adam and Eve, humans have been predisposed toward idolatry. As human beings, we didn't last long before we took what we should be worshiping and following and started thinking we knew better, we knew a better way, right? We know from Genesis 3, that they thought they could figure it out, that we know a better way. We are so easily led astray by our own desires. No one has to be taught this idolatry. We figure it all out on our own, all by ourselves. And not only do we figure it all out on our own, um, but we do it early. We figure it out pretty quickly. We don't need training. We don't take any classes on this. Usually, 
the thing or things we chase after today at your age, whatever that is, are things that have plagued you or me for years. Sometimes we have desires and motivations that we have carried around since childhood. Now, I'm not saying our past defines us. I'm not saying, well, if this happens in your childhood, it's going to carry on forever. But what I am pointing out is idols of the heart leech onto us and are hard to unentangle from within. The root of the heart issue often is something that we carried with us for years. God is calling us to reject the idols in our lives. But this is, this is hard we don't want to give them up, and they don't want to leave. What makes this difficult at times, at times is that we carry these idols with us, and too often we don't see them as, as enemies against us. We want peace or comfort or joy or safety. Name it. We want these things, and we miss that the things that we're chasing after can bring hurt or pain conflict or confusion. We believe our own lies and we walk in our own wisdom. We make these idols to be these, our precious little Smeagol, you know, in Lord of the Rings or Gollum, right? Gollum, if we use him as our, as like a allegory to this idea that idols change us, right? He, be, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, he's this ugly, nasty, hairless, gross thing. But he wasn't always that way. He found the ring um, and the ring um, so like he becomes this deformed twisted thing and his mind is corrupted always thinking about the ring and it's my precious. Right? His chief desire was to possess and then once it was taken from him repossess that ring. It had enslaved him and he had pursued it for many years after Bilbo Baggins found it in Gollum's cave. But this is what we do with our idols, right? We look at them and we see, maybe physically, but just in our lives, things are changing. The things that we're going after are not giving us what we want, but we chase even harder after them. We fight even harder to keep them. And sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think Gollum recognizes how ugly and nasty he had become. That he looked like a hobbit and then he turned into what he had turned into. And we miss that sometimes. But then when we see it, we say, well, if I just got what I wanted, it would be better. We'd keep chasing after the ring, right? We got to recognize that we follow these lies and these, these idols do this to us. They hurt us. We think that they're going to comfort us or that they'll fulfill us. It, we believe that that's who we are and it's how we get life. And so rejecting idolatry is very, very difficult. You know, if you know that Lord of the Rings story, Gollum didn't lose the ring and go, well, easy come, easy go. No, he chased after it hard. And so we can't drop our security blanket and move on. We must have God's help since this has been our way of operating. The temptation also if once we recognize it, is not to drop it completely, but we like to kind of give it a little modification and keep it. We twist this sinful thought, we add some Christianese to it, and boom, now it's okay, right? That's the danger. We try to 
tweak these things instead of performing radical amputation. We need to say to ourselves, I can't keep on living this way. Matthew 5, 27 through 28 says, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here is Christ laying out the full extent of sin in our hearts. As believers, we know that physical adultery is sin. We speak against it. We avoid it. But Jesus kind of turns it and shows us that even the thoughts in our mind, this lust is an example of adultery. Something that we're not actually physically doing is the same sin as if we were doing it. We can take this principle and look at how we excuse our own idols. We could say to ourselves, of course I haven't committed adultery against my spouse. I've never gone on a date with someone other than my spouse once I was married. I, I, I haven't kissed another man or whatever. We could go through down this whole long list. You know, we, we think these things, but then we, we think about what it would be like. Or we read these books that give us this, take us to a fantasy of whatever and, and gets us down this path of thinking other things. And we convince ourselves that we're not really hurting someone because we haven't actually committed the sin. We're not actually doing that. I'm not actually committing adultery. But Jesus says otherwise. He says we are to commit um, or practice radical amputation. You know what I mean by that? He, he goes on to say that in the next few verses. Matthew 5, 29 through 30, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, we're to tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus, hopefully it's obvious, is not advocating for physical mutilation here. Because if he was, we'd be walking around with arms missing and eyes gone and that sort of thing. What he's advocating for here, what he is telling us we've got to do is to cut off every avenue where this sin enters in. If we leave just a little bit, we'll be tempted to turn to it when things get tough or those desires come. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks of what, what we do. How does this actually happen? What do we, how do we actually practice this radical amputation? But first, let's talk about how do we even become idolaters? I told you that early on in our lives, we do this. So how do we do that? Well, Romans 1, 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then verse 25 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You and I, all of us, all humans, came into this world moral beings aware of a glorious God. We are aware of him by looking at the creation and we are aware of him by our own conscience. 
I'm sure you know what I'm, what I'm talking about when I say this. Like, the, you know how the sky sometimes can be, it can be cloudy. You've got the big puffy clouds, right? There's, you can't see the sky above it. So all these puffy clouds. And then they spread and separate a little bit. And the, the sun shines through, and you can see, like, those streaks, the rays of sun. And, uh, I mean, it's beautiful, right? And sometimes it's like, uh, if it's towards the end of the day, it's a, that you get, like, those orangish or pink colors. And, I mean, it's just, it's just really beautiful. I, I always think, like, that's what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. I've got no biblical reference for that, except that it, I think it's going to happen that way. So... If I'm wrong, great, who cares? But, you know, it's like, that's what I think about. And I, I think that um, when, when I see that and I'm looking at that beauty, I remember we would talk about, the, uh, the, talk about this when our boys were real little in the back of the car, as some of those days would happen. I can remember specifically one time, like, I thought it was just so beautiful, whatever the moment was, I don't know, I was caught up in the spirit. I don't know. I pulled over on the side of the road and we looked at it. And I was just telling our, my boys, like, look how beautiful that is, right? And, and I'm, I'm remembering, and we would talk about this, and I remember my youngest son saying this when he could talk, didn't talk all that well. Psalm 19.1, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I remember he would see that and he's like, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I was like, that's right. Yeah. So we don't necessarily need a, this verse though to tell us that. We know it because inside of us, we know there is something greater than us out there. We look at science and we see God's fingerprints all over it. We look and see mountains and, and the beauty of the mountains or the, the ocean. And you see the power and the, the beauty in the ocean. The sky, you look at your newborn baby. Like these are things that we see. It's like God's there. God is there. God is there. That is God. God is there. We know this. But we also know that we deny that, right? Romans 1, 19 through 20 says this. For what can be known about God is what? It's evident. It is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What he's talking about there is his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now, that's not the gospel. That isn't how we have saving faith in God. But creation is a way that shows us that we can know that there even is a God. God has made that plain to us, evident. We see it. We know it. And then we have a conscience. Romans 2.15 explains that God put his law in our hearts, on our conscience, so we know there is a God. Just like God did for his people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, he's given us these front row seats to his glory and his power. We're funny people, if I'm honest, right? We read about the Israelites in Exodus and we think, how can these people be so foolish? How do, how do they keep missing it, right? God has just performed these unbelievable miracles, right? He, he does all of those plagues, 
while performing, doing these plagues, the, he protects the Israelites. It doesn't affect them, right? He, he leads them by uh, this huge cloud by day. They follow it. It's taking them away. It's a, a pillar of fire at night. He takes an ocean and spreads it, or separates it so they can walk across on dry land. He, he decimates the Egyptians. And after a few weeks... They're making a golden calf to some other deity because Moses has taken too long up on the mountain talking to God. You're like, what? How is that possible that you just walked through all of this stuff and now we're, we're building an idol to who, whatever, right? We read those accounts and we laugh at them like, oh, what foolish people. And yet we don't see how similar we are to the Israelites. We miss it in our own lives. I mean, good grief, we forget about the last grand and glorious thing God did for us by the next trial that hits. It's like we have some kind of this spiritual amnesia. No memory of the lessons we should have learned and no memory of God working in our lives when we're faced with the tough stuff. All we see in that moment is that moment, is that trial. And we start making golden calves instead of trusting God. You know, we, we want to be in control. Things come our way. Circumstances in life hit us. And we want to know the outcome. We want to be able to say what's going to happen next. We can't control God. So what we do is turn to the things that we can control. No matter what we turn to, it's going to serve us poorly. Our idols, they damage us. They cause us hurt. They cost us dearly. But we think that they're predictable and that they can, we can keep them in control. Brad Bigney in this chapter tells us that there's an unpredictability about God that we are not comfortable with. He says, I don't mean to imply that like us, he can't be counted on. Rather, God doesn't reveal him to himself to us so fully that we know exactly what he's going to do, how he's going to do it every time and in every circumstance. And that drives us nuts. We know what God did the last time in a certain situation, so we assume that he'll do it that way every time. But it doesn't happen that way. And God doesn't send out memos saying, hey, I see what just hit in your life and I want you to know I'm on it. Here's the timetable. So we turn to idols often just to remove this uneasy feeling of waiting and depending on God. I'm sure you're like me. We don't want life to be hard. We want things to go the way we want them to go. We really struggle when we have a plan or an idea in our mind how things should go and some monkey wrench comes flying in and messing it up. We don't want or like the uneasiness of unknown. Our flesh tries to finagle a way to assist, and idols is what our flesh comes up with. It's a bad solution. It's a false promise. It's a lie. And idols don't deliver. This is the great exchange that Romans 1 is talking about. Remember that Romans 1, 21 and 25 for they knew, although they knew God, they didn't honor him, give thanks to him. Those things, they became futile in their thinking, foolish thoughts, because they exchanged 
the truth of God. The only way you can exchange something is if you have it, know it, and exchange it in some other way. So they knew the truth about God and they exchanged for a lie. This isn't just some man-made statue or a necklace to some made-up deity. This is also like worshiping ourselves, right? He says they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, and so we think about that, but, but we are the created. We are that creature, cre- creature, excuse me. It's this figurative bowing down to our wants and what we label as needs. Anything that you take as the answer that isn't God or the gospel is a lie and it will not satisfy. The problem is sometimes they satisfy for a little bit at the beginning. They seem to give us what we want for a time, but over time it doesn't happen. It's like drinking water from the ocean. It doesn't quench the thirst and will eventually kill you. For example, marriage, right? God designed marriage. He gave us marriage. This is a gift and it is wonderful. But I tell you from experience, if you are hoping or expecting your spouse to meet all your plans, all your desires, and all your wants, you're going to be sorely mistaken. One of my favorite types of counseling is pre-marriage counseling. I love to meet with these, this young couple and talk about how to plan and prepare for the future. What are the good things that are going to happen? What are some tough things? What are the hard things? And all of these couples come in starry-eyed and giddy, right? Some more than others. They're excited to start this new life together. I've yet to meet with a couple, though, that hasn't in some way place their hope in the wrong place somewhere. Somewhere along the line, there's a wrong a misunderstanding of hopes of where they're going to put that in. Now, I haven't had somebody tell me, all my hopes and dreams are wrapped in this person. They're going to fulfill my desires. They'll be the solution to all my troubles. Everything that's been wrong in my life will now be right once we're married. No one's ever actually said that, but you hear inklings of it at times. You can see it when they talk about plans or the future of the other person. You know, marriage and your spouse cannot bear that burden. It can't deliver that. Brad also in this chapter talks about children. They are a blessing from the Lord, but too many parents have elevated their children to their trophies. Paul Tripp calls, it says that children make terrible trophies. Well, you can love them. You can enjoy them, you can train them, you can work with them, but don't make your children your trophies because you're setting yourself up for sorrow. All right, so let me give you some ways to start to deal with idolatry in your own life. I give you some handouts. If you don't have them, you can grab them here at the end of the um, lesson today. On that handout is an exercise for you to work through. It's a few pages. It seems like a lot. It really isn't a a ton. But what I want you to do is take some time this week to work through it. Make it your quiet time for a day or two, something like that. But don't just like fill in the blanks. Don't hurry through and just make the check marks. Some of those things are like just check marks. Don't just go check, 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 done, right? Take a little bit of time to personally apply it. 
You don't have to have some kind of a degree or be super insightful here. Just be willing to pray that prayer in Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And God will help. I would take time to focus on this verse and these questions. Pray that prayer a few times. Sit down with the intention to focus on what idols you uncover. Now, usually the things that we uncover and we find are not some huge, gross thing. But most often they're the things that we just don't recognize in ourselves. We think what we are doing is the right thing for the right reasons. And we can usually even quote book, chapter, and verse to justify or or to back it up on what we're doing. Let me give you an example from David Pallison. So a woman commits adultery and she repents. She and her husband work to rebuild this marriage painstakingly, patiently. So these are believers. This is believers, right? Eight months later, the man finds himself plagued with subtle suspiciousness. The wife senses it and feels a bit like she lives under FBI surveillance. The husband is grieved by his suspiciousness because he has no objective reasons for suspicion. He says, I've forgiven her. We've worked on rebuilding our marriage. Communication is better than it ever was before. Why do I hold on to this mistrust? What finally emerges in counseling is that he's willing to forgive the past, but he's attempting to control the future. His craving could be stated this way. I want to guarantee that betrayal never ever happens again the very intensity of his craving begins to poison the relationship. It places him in a stance of continually evaluating and judging his wife rather than loving her. What he wants cannot be guaranteed this side of glory. We live in this unpredictable world. We people are poor at keeping our own promises. This life can be unsafe God cares and loves you, but there is no guarantee on this side of heaven that whatever happened to you won't happen again. So the husband sees this point. He sees his inordinate desire to ensure the future, but he bursts out. What's wrong with me wanting my wife to love me? What's wrong with me wanting my wife to stay faithful to our marriage? Sounds right. It sounds godly. Seems like good requests, but that's where our idols lie. They are cloaked in something that doesn't sound heinous at all. Here's where this truth is so sweet. There is nothing wrong with the object of his desire, wanting his wife to love him, to stay faithful to the marriage. There's nothing wrong with that desire. But there's everything wrong with it when it rules his life. When that becomes the thing that you live for, that's where it's wrong. As we wrap up this lesson, I want to leave you with this. Ephesians 1, 17, um, in the NIV version, says it this way. I like the wording of this. It says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. If you really take the time to look at the ugliness in your heart 
And when God reveals it to you, you're going to be discouraged. So be sure you're looking to Christ when this happens. Preach the gospel to yourself. Delight in the Savior who has rescued you from this awfulness. Look into your heart, but gaze at Christ. Let this time of finding these idols be a way of drawing you nearer to the Lord. And remember this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hold on to that promise. It's a beautiful promise. Let me pray. Lord, you promise that as you have saved us from sin and death, as you have saved us from these, this awfulness, you will hold us. You will keep us in your righteous right hand. You will not lose us. Lord, we are in a battle now. As long as you have us on this earth, we are in a battle to fight. Lord, we can't win this battle without your help. We pray for your uh, help as we read your word. Help us to hide your word in our heart. Help us to root out sin and deal with it appropriately with your guidance, with your word, with your truth. Lord, I'm thankful for all the people here today who are willing to sit and listen. Um, Lord, we, we want to be a people that are um, caring and loving to one another. Um, this is a, a way that we can come alongside one another and help one another. This is not a single lonely thing that we must do, but we can care and love one another as we do this. Uh, Lord, we want to be pleasing in your sight. Uh, we look forward to uh, uh, this time now this morning to hear, um, sit under the preaching of the, uh, your word and uh, fellowship with one another. We thank you for Christ um, who has brought this salvation to us and it's his name that we pray. Amen.